Welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is John Mueller, political scientist at Ohio State University and a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. John's new book, The Stupidity of War, American Foreign Policy and the Case for Complacency, was published by Cambridge University last week. John, welcome to the show and congratulations on the book. Thanks very much. Do us a favor and just kind of state the thesis of the book. What's the main takeaway that you try to get across? Well, I think probably the main thing is what I'm, it's, the book is sort of an autobiography or a biography of an idea, which is in the title. The idea is that war is really very stupid. Um, and uh, what I'm impressed by is that although wars have always been stupid, uh, for example, if you go back to the Greek and Trojan War, uh, which is about uh, 10 centuries BC, uh, it was fought over an errant wife, lasted 10 years, and ended up with the complete destruction of Troy, including killing everybody or selling the women into sexual slavery and burning the place to the ground. They didn't even find it for two millennia, find the place for two millennia. So wars have always been pretty stupid, but it's very hard to see people who have said that. Uh, you can find it occasionally, but up until World War I in Europe in particular, um, the idea basically was that war was wonderful, that it was glorious, manly, progressive, uh, and that peace was, as some people put it, bovine content, crass commercialism, et cetera, et cetera. And I can give you hundreds, literally hundreds of people saying that, including people like Immanuel Kant, for example, the philosopher. Uh, war is decadent. Uh, war, war is wonderful. Peace is decadent and effeminate and uh, commercial and so forth. Uh, after World War I, however, that changed. And you can't, it's, it's almost impossible to find anybody that does say it. Uh, I may found one or two places, that's about it. So what happened was there was a huge change between 1914 and 1918. Uh, and I think it mainly comes from the fact that World War I was the first war, major war, before which there was an organized anti-war movement. So you had things like the Nobel Peace Prize, you had Andrew Carnegie getting into it. You had novels written, you had uh, uh, things like uh, Norman Angel's book on um, arguing that war is economically futile and so forth. These were basically just sort of a gadfly movement at the time and very much denigrated by the people who still exalted in war. Uh, but after the war, it became mainstream. And so my idea basically is that, uh, has, that, is, that has substantially lasted. After World War I, great efforts were made to try to not have war come again. Um, and I, I can give you an example of this, which I just came across, across in Wikipedia almost by accident. Someone in Wikipedia has decided to write down all the plays that are anti-war plays. It starts out with three plays by the ancient Greeks, two by Aeschylus and uh, one by Euripides. Uh, and the next one is 1929. Uh, I think there's probably some places where you could argue with that, but that's a long time. And then after 1929, there are a whole bunch of plays along that line. So that would give you sort of a feel for what it's like. I can give you more examples if you want. It's kind of interesting. Um, you know, you, you make a strong case that the real beginning of this trend was around 1889 with the publication of a book called Lay Down Your Arms by Bertha von Suttner. Tell us about that book and the, the impact you think it had. Yeah, well, it was, she, she, uh, she points out it was totally unexpected. She had been, there had been sort of burblings around about what maybe war should be obsolete. We shouldn't do it. When they talk about war, they mainly talk about international war, of course, not war with the Zulus or between the Zulus. And so um, 
she uh, basically picked this up and decided to write it into a really ter pretty terrible novel called Lay Down Your Arms. came out in 1889, as you pointed out. And it went viral. And she was totally flabbergasted. She said, it's like, you know, there's lightning in the air, but until somebody lights a spark, nothing happens. Uh, and, and there's this gradual thing of like as Albert no Alfred Nobel, who she almost worked for for a while, um, and others that basically were on the bandwagon. So it was completely new. Just as a century earlier, the idea that we should get rid of slavery was completely new or pretty much completely new. Um, and so uh, that, that was the, the, the catalyst. A lot of people joined up. But again, it was still a minority movement before the war. For example, uh, Rupert Brooke, a famous uh, poet, uh, English poet, writes as he is drafted into World War I. And as he's about to go out, he writes a poem, ironically entitled Peace. And in it, he says, I am now uh, leaping into cleanness, going from the dirt and filth of peace to the cleanness of war. Uh, he died about eight months later from an infected mosquito bite and never saw much war. But anyway, that, that was this sort of attitude, you know, this incredibly romantic idea and, and practical idea that it was advanced economics, it was progressive, um, it was glorious, etc. And that is gone. You just can't find it. So my argument basically is that was a major change. And I've said several historians and political scientists who would basically agree there was, a, particularly in Europe, this was in Europe, uh, which is the most warlike continent in the world. Uh, it basically evaporated. And uh, you feel compelled in the book, at least to make a quick note um, and distinguish these claims or your, your main claim from a kind of kumbaya, uh, everybody hold hands and uh, call for global peace. So what, what is that distinction? Okay, well, let, let me just quite bring it up. Obviously, there was a couple of nations that didn't quite get the, the message after 1918. One was Japan, uh, which missed the World War I, and they, you could still find it there. They learned their lesson in World War II. And the other was Germany, where, as far as I can see, nobody wanted war except Hitler. It's basically Hitler's wars, as frequently is called. Anyway, after World War II, what seems to have happened largely, certainly in the developed world, is that uh, war was regarded as being stupid. And we've now lived for the long, Europe has now been at peace, free from international war for the longest period of time since it was invented as a word, uh, which was about 400 BC. Um, so it's a remarkable record. And then gradually what's happened is that international peace is, freedom from international war has sort of spread throughout the world. Uh, there used to be a fair number of wars between the Israelis and the Arabs, uh, Arab states, and, the, and between India and Pakistan, but there hasn't been anything much since the early 1970s. Um, now, what so the, the image basically is, uh, getting to your kumbaya question, is that people just say, this thing is stupid. Uh, we're not going to, basically, what seems to increasingly have happened is that the idea of using war to settle international disputes has pretty much vanished. Uh, there's only been two international wars in this whole century by normal standards. Those are the two invasions by the United States of Iraq and of Afghanistan, of which, of course, were 9-11 related. Uh, but that doesn't mean everything's peace and wonderful. Uh, it, it still is that people meddle in other people's civil wars. They still have border disputes. They're just a recent one between um, uh, China and uh, India, which cost lives. Uh, they lob cyber balloons. Uh, they were involved in themselves in trade wars and conflicts like that. So it isn't that they become necessarily civil. They just do not use war as a means for settling their disputes. 
and the and this essential uh, suggestion of the book is that we we should really take that seriously. Big countries, small countries, countries in general, even Ethiopia and Eritrea, who had the last sort of noticeable war at the end of the last century, basically for the most part don't do that anymore. And that's a huge change from previous history. When I when I read the academic literature on the decline of war in the second half of the 20, 20th century, I think there's a lot of attempts to explain it. And then some people try to challenge, you know, whether it is the case or not. But then there's this separate contingent. I don't think that, uh, uh, I don't know how popular is, is, is in academia, but it's certainly a consensus in D.C. that the reason you haven't seen a global war since 1945 is because the United States has been uh, a dominant busybody preventing it from happening. Uh, and much of this book is basically a rebuttal of that claim. Um, we'll go through it, but just give me the top line uh, argument for, for why uh, U.S. foreign policy since 1945 cannot get the credit for uh, this uh, apparent decline in war. Yeah, people who say that about the Pax Americana and so forth have to provide examples of where it actually happened. Some people argue that France and Germany, for example, would have gotten into a war with each other because of uh, if the United States hadn't stopped that from happening. And I just see that as, as nonsense. Um, you can't, it, uh, uh, what I challenge them to do is find any Frenchman or any German who stood on a soapbox at any time over the last, four, the last three quarters of a century and, uh, and has said, you know, we, ought to, we used to be really good at getting into wars with each other. Why don't we try that? Uh, instead, what has happened is war between these two longtime rivals has not happened in any sense. Not that they don't disagree about a lot of stuff and they work it out, but they don't use war to deal with it. So I think that that basically is, is the, the overall pattern. In terms, in terms of the Cold War, uh, there's no evidence whatever that anybody in the Soviet Union ever talk, thought seriously about starting a, a significant war. They were in, in favor of funding revolutions and class warfare in various places, but a direct war, just no one, no one. There's, there have been people been through the archives. They can't find anything. They were pl planned to defend themselves if they were attacked, but not if they, but not uh, not starting a war, so I don't think there was anything to deter during that time, and that's continued I think in the post Cold War period as well for the most part. Well, you're right about how the Korean War was uh, sort of changed U.S. perceptions of the communist threat and therefore changed the trajectory of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, tell us how you assess this early Cold War incident. Yeah, there are a lot of. Um, it, uh, it's basically, there's a lot in the book about threat inflation. And the Korean War, uh, there were two possibilities when the Korean War took place. One was that it was a Soviet drive for world domination using military force. The other was that it was a in a, an incredible backwater at that time of the world. Uh, the Soviet uh, communist movement saw that they might be able to pull off a quick victory in, over South Korea. Both of those things were plausible, and the first, second one was basically right, as we certainly know now. But the second one was almost never really considered. Instead, it was just assumed by everybody, including Harry Truman at the time, that this was part of a world class, world, world, you know, if we don't stop them there, we're going to have World War III. Instead, it was basically an experimental ploy in an area that seemed to be of incredibly small significance, mostly egged on by the North Koreans, because they thought they could take down the South Koreans very quickly. 
Um, the Korean War is the only one, I think, that I go through the war since World War II that the United States has fought. And uh, even though it ended up in a stalemate, it may have been the only one worth fighting. Uh, that was not because they had it right at the beginning, but because it preserved a large hundred, tens of millions of people in South Korea from falling under the sway of the disastrous regime in North Korea. The, the war, nonetheless, was extremely costly. Millions died. And so that, but anyway, it seems that, seems to me that's the one where you can most make the case for the fact that American intervention uh, was useful. I think it's a, it can be a jarring claim for most people in our line of work to hear that the deterrence policy that the United States pursued in, in the Cold War against the Soviet Union was essentially trying to solve a problem that didn't exist. If people point to the, say, Cuban Missile Crisis or the Soviet support of the Koreans in the, in the Korean War or whatever, um, how do you respond to uh, skeptics of this claim? Well, they, ba they basically, uh, no one wanted to get into a war that looked anything like World War II. They were willing to fight proxy wars, maybe, and even, even that came out, died out. There was certain bound support for certain people in civil wars. We still see it going on, for example, in Syria and in Yemen. Uh, but the idea that anybody in the Soviet Union wanted to get into anything with or without nuclear weapons uh, that looked anything like World War II is daft, it seems to me. Uh, I can quote Nikita Khrushchev, uh, who said, some people say I'm afraid of war. And what he said was, I'd like to find anybody that isn't afraid of war. Of course I'm afraid of war. My son died in it. Everybody, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, uh, but hardly anybody ever said that during the Cold War. And, and the, the, the proof is on the, in, is, it seems to me, has to be done by people who think it did deter a war. Show me any evidence that they in a million years would have wanted to get anything resembled World War II, even without nuclear weapons. You know, another war in Europe, for example, coming across the Fulda Gap and all that. And I think it's simply not there. And we've now been through the Soviet archives, and they backed that up completely. So the idea that uh, the Soviet Union didn't want to start a war is really, um, uh, it, you're quite right, it's quite shocking to a lot of people, but it just seems to me overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly true. Uh, they didn't conflicts like the Cuban Missile Crisis, but yeah, as you notice, no war took place. And even from that standpoint, um, both Khrushchev and Kennedy from the very get-go were determined to keep this from escalating. They wanted to settle the issue of the missiles, of course, but they were not going to go to war, even at the groveling. And both sides were willing to grovel rather than, than to, uh, to escalate. What does it say about the way states behave that you have these two bipolar rivals over the course of many decades, each of which believes the other is willing to take on extraordinary risks and costs in order to defeat the other? And uh, each drives up fear in their domestic situation, and each draws up expansive and activist foreign policies to counter the other. And it's really just this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. It's, uh, it's a really tragic element in international politics. Yeah, it's called tragic by, by Robert Jervis, for example. I think it's more, it's more farce, farcical, um, and, uh, or, or a theater of the absurd. Uh, it, it basically is, uh, uh, it, it, what you're talking about is a security dilemma, uh, each side trying to build up more uh, to deter the other side. And so because they're building up, they think it's not for deterrence, but it's for actually aggression. And so the other side builds up. 
So you certainly have had that dynamic. Uh, one of the things I discovered looking into it pretty carefully, that the one person, uh, one person in the world <laughs> who has really believed that during the Cold War was Dwight Eisenhower, president. Um, uh, and he, uh, what seemed to set him going, it's really very interesting, it seems to me. Uh, in 1945, he flew to Moscow to meet with Stalin right after World War II. Then flying back, he flew, apparently the plane was pretty low, and he, he looked down and he said, all the way, everything was destroyed. They're not going to do that again. And that's certainly what they told him, of course, and the question is whether you believe him. And he basically agreed that they didn't really need to be deterred, but he was never willing to say that really point blank in public. Instead, he blamed the Cold War, et cetera, on the in military industrial complex or something, uh, not on the fear of Soviet aggression, which is what gave the industrial complex its uh, political clout. Deterrence policy uh, during the Cold War, um, you say it was misguided and logically flawed, and it ended up leading us um, into this notion that if one domino fell one place, others would follow, and therefore basically every geo geopolitical flashpoint got raised, elevated in importance. Um, and this led policymakers to perceive a communist threat virtually everywhere. And we suddenly became concerned with Greece and Yugoslavia and then on to Vietnam. Talk about this, the expansion of the Cold War under this dynamic. Well, you defined it very well. It was basically a feeling that if one goes, another one goes. And the containment policy was based on keeping the Soviet Union from expanding. Uh, uh, even a little bit, because then a bunch of other dominoes would fall. And ironically, the containment policy worked best when it failed. After 1975, uh, the United States stood by because of Vietnam uh, and watched 10 countries fall into the Soviet orbit, starting with Vietnam and Cambodia and then going to Africa and South Yemen um, and finally, ultimately, uh, um, Afghanistan. And what happened was each of these countries turned into economic and political basket and economic and military basket cases, looking to the Soviet Union for maternal well help and sustenance. And the Soviets soon became convinced that it would have been better off contained. Um, so it, it, the, when containment failed, uh, it led a lot of countries into the um, into the orbit, but the Soviet Union found that it would be better off not gobbling them up. And that was one of the things, you know, Afghanistan in particular, of course, became this wound, this uh, bleeding sore, as Gorbachev called it, and eventually changed the ideology. Some conventional wisdom uh, suggests that the Cold War ended because the United States engaged in a massive military buildup. Um, we pressured the Soviets in all kinds of ways. Um, we battled them in a proxy war in Afghanistan and drained them dry. Um, you basically reject this argument um, whole cloth. Why do you think the Cold War ended? It basically was, uh, as some people pointed out at the time, a crappy system. Uh, you know, the United States didn't force them to build, overbuild a military force. The United States didn't force them to build this terrible economic system that was unable to deliver to the consumers of the world. The United States didn't force them to gobble up a few countries after uh, 1975. Uh, it was basically rotten to the core. 
And I quote a lot, a lot of people, including a major historian, including Strove uh, Talbot, for example, who say that it, it rotted from within. All the United States had to do was basically stand back and watch, uh, for the most part, instead of intervening. And of course, the intervening was incredibly costly in the case of Vietnam, where millions of people died and 55,000 Americans died, which would, and the country then, of course, became communist. Um, it might have been become communist had the United States not intervened, uh, but now they're bosom buddies in the United States and Vietnam. After the Cold War, you say America went on a, quote, quest to find threats to worry about and monsters to pursue. And it seems to me, looking back, like there was this massive expansion of uh, our military's mission and our national security state in the face of what was perceived to be a threat, the Soviet Union. And then that threat essentially evaporated in the early 90s. And uh, we had this massive national security state to figure out what, how to apply it. We need to put people to work. We have these tools. And um, we ended up defining down what a threat is in order to overuse this massive military around the world. Explain this. Yeah, it's, uh, there's, there's an idea that this was done because of a liberal hege hegemony or neoconservative hegemony. And if you look at it in the, in, the, in, the, in the 10 years, particularly after the Cold War, it was very tentative. I refer to it as vast proclamation and half-vast execution. So the United States was willing to do some humanitarian things, such as intervene in, um, in Somalia. Uh, basically, when 21 Americans get, got killed, it said, let's get out of here. And they did. Somalia's been a mess ever since. Um, then there was a genocide the next year in Rwanda. The United States didn't do anything. It tried to keep others from going in in many respects, and the genocide took place because it was basking in what was then known as a Somali uh, syndrome. Um, in the case of Bosnia, there was concern. is basically humanitarian and justifiable in a lot of ways, but the United States didn't do much of anything except wring its hands. And then after the war was over, when it was won basically by the Croats and the Muslims, the United States came in to help uh, build a, uh, a, a, a peace agreement. And the same thing when Kosovo, they also uh, in, got involved in Kosovo, but the United States never got closer than 40,000 feet uh, dropping bombs. So it's been, there's been some effort to try to police the world. And um, they, uh, most of those efforts, it, it, and, and, they, uh, and the basic thing is this is not really a big thing. It's basically we'll go in, if we can stop it, we'll stop it. If not, we'll get out. There have been military interventions that have been successful. Uh, the military event interventions in uh, Liberia, for example, the troops came in and the war stopped. Uh, or the Australians going into East Timor, a bunch of thugs running around shooting the place up. The Australians show up with a disciplined military force and the thugs go back to normal thuggery. Um, so sometimes military interventions do work uh, and they have in a number of places, which I outline in the book. Uh, but they are not massive hegemonic displays. They're efforts to try to help out. If they go awry, generally speaking, uh, the withdrawers withdraw themselves. The, the interveners withdraw themselves. What about the 1991 Gulf War? How does that fit in your analysis? Yeah, that was a, um, that was a uh, major effort to try to t throw back aggression. And it was framed that way initially. As, uh, as uh, Saddam Hussein took over, over uh, Kuwait. Um, it, it was very successful, but it's mostly because the uh, Iraqi army had no 
well, didn't have any defenses, uh, planning, strategy, morale, or leadership. Otherwise, it was a first-class operation. Anyway, it fell apart. Uh, my concern about that is that, it, though I certainly think something should have been done to deal with the Iraqi taking over, Iraq's taking over uh, Kuwait under the leadership of Saddam Hussein, but I think he could have been negotiated out of it. And uh, George H.W. Bush simply refused to even think about that. The result of the war was not so many people were killed in that war, probably less than 10,000, but uh, 20, 30, 40,000 were killed in its aftermath when uprisings in Iraq took place, urged on by the United States, and they were crushed by the Iraqi army, which was not very good at fighting the United States, was very good at killing unarmed civilians. Threatlessness and complacency can seem like counterintuitive notions when we think back to the terrorist attacks of 9-11 uh, and its aftermath. So how do you assess the U.S. reaction in both domestic and foreign policy to the 9-11 attacks? Yeah, in that case, uh, complacency, you had to do something. Uh, but it's pretty clear that something much more mild could have happened rather than taking down two governments, which had nothing to do with 9-11. Uh, after 9-11, it was pretty clear that the, everybody was horrified by this worldwide. Um, and going after the guys who did it was probably a good idea, but it should have been done in cooperation with the Taliban in Afghanistan, who did not get along at all well with Al-Qaeda, as well as with the Taliban's sugar daddies, uh, which was Saudi Arabia, who wanted to get Osama bin Laden out themselves as a renegade, as well as Pakistan, which was also playing a big role in that area. So working with those two countries, as well as with the Soviets, and with the Russians then, uh, and with China, um, and with Iran as well, uh, I think the problem could have been substantially solved. Instead, because we had this big military, uh, we jumped in against two wars, which has now resulted in hundreds of thousands of deaths in Iraq and Afghanistan. If we hadn't had those forces, if we'd been more complacent in the sense of working, as I've indicated, uh, those, those wars wouldn't have taken place. The places might still be controlled by the Taliban and by Saddam Hussein, but the United States has made both of them into uh, you know, cauldrons of warfare filled with uh, people tr trying to get out uh, and uh, enormous amount of destructiveness. Hundreds, as I say, hundreds of thousands of people have died. Speaking of cauldrons of conflict, um, one of the unintended consequences of the United States war in Iraq was to um, spur and incite a Sunni insurgency um, in, in Iraq that uh, a portion of which eventually morphed into a group called ISIS or the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. And they went around marauding into Syria's civil war and uh, over the border in, in Iraq and um, did some terribly uh, horrific uh, acts and made sure to uh, use their media savvy to blast it all over the world. Um, and the United States responded with a strong air war, uh, which is largely seen, I think, in, in D.C. As, as a success. Um, you argue against using that model uh, as as a success story and in applying it to U.S. foreign policy and, and other situations. Talk about why. Yeah, the, uh, the ISIS was really horrible. It, it wasn't started by the United States. It started by Maliki. 
After the United States withdrew from Iraq, he started this anti-Sunni campaign, which fed perfectly into what the uh, ISIS was uh, 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 doing, and they were they gained quite a bit after 2014, for example. Um, uh, however, they were basically their own worst enemy, and turned everybody against them. In, in other words, if you got attacked by Iraq, if you get if you get taken over by ISIS, you're likely, very likely, to end up extremely dead. Uh, this tends to concentrate the mind. Consequently, on the ground, they, the United States had really effective allies, the Kurds, of course, but also uh, Shia and uh, the Sunnis as well as Shia. Uh, and everybody came basically to treat, feel that ISIS was a disaster. So the air war there um, was uh, helpful, but I think the heavy lifting was basically being done on the ground. So basically, there are two reasons why it worked, it seems to me. One was we're fighting with allies who really desperately want to defeat these guys. They're willing to fight and die for it on all sides. Um, and, so, and so that's obviously the kind of people you want on the ground. Um, and the second is that American public opinion uh, was so horribly outraged against uh, ISIS that it gave sort of a green light uh, to the whole thing. Um, so, but those two things are not likely in the, in, 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 in other places. Uh, the, the, uh, the most logical place obviously would be Afghanistan. And the idea that the Afghans are dedicated fighters is in the same sense. Uh, and that if they, they feel they're going to die, if the Taliban comes back is, is highly questionable. And secondly, public opinion is not remotely, uh, supportive of it. The, uh, use of the phrase by, with, and through, which is what the, became streamlined, uh, which Americans working by, with, and through people on the ground uh, did work in that extreme case of the extremely murderous ISIS, but is unlikely, uh, and particularly supported by American public opinion, uh, but that's unlikely to work in other places. So I don't think it's as a strategy, it has much in the way of legs, um, but, it, but it basically did work at destroying this horrific, uh, this horrific uh, movement. You mentioned uh, popular opinion. It's kind of conventional wisdom that politicians feel pressure to be more hawkish uh, because they fear the public consequences of uh, appearing like a dove or a weakling or uh, not tough. Um, is that pressure coming from the American people or, or do you not see it that way? Yeah, I don't know. I think we're in a position now, I, I coined a phrase a few years ago called the, Vietnam, called the Iraq Syndrome. And uh, as with the Vietnam syndrome, uh, public opinion largely said, let's not do that again. Um, and the United States didn't do any Vietnams after Vietnam. Uh, and as I think it's unlikely to do any Somalia, any, um, any Iraqs after Iraq and Afghanistan, of course, also laying it in. Uh, that doesn't mean that the American public is opposed to asserting itself, that it's asserting American uh, uh, clout around the world. Uh, it, it was w willing to continue to support after the Vietnam War. It was willing to support, continue to support the Cold War, just not one tactic, which is on the ground warfare. And I think something similar is happening now. It's willing to do uh, to, to support dealing with potential adversaries, uh, but uh, not at the cost of war. You know, it seems to me part of that might be a dynamic that's partially influencing the Biden administration right now. Uh, on the one hand, nobody really expected the you know President Biden to radically transform 
American foreign policy away from its interventionist habit, but uh, I think he worries about appearing weak in the context of the U.S. rivalry with China or Russia or Iran. Uh, if we were to approach these issues more in the way that you recommend in the book, what would that look like? Well, they, I think they're exaggerating the threats out there. And a theme through the book is we've exa- we constantly exaggerated what threats are, either their existence or their potency or both. And uh, it, it, it seems that there are things to be concerned about, uh, but they're not likely to lead to war. Um, the military is not terribly helpful. Uh, if you're worried about a refugee crisis or global warming or um, uh, pandemics, obviously you don't need more aircraft carriers. Um, there, there are challengers, there are competitors, in which case what you want to do is compete. But uh, in, in case of the two, obviously the two uh, uh, elements which are considered to be the most dangerous, namely the, uh, a resurgent Russia and a, an assertive China, I think the thing that mostly, mostly stands out is they're not Hitlerian. They don't want to take over any more territory with the exception, presumably, of, uh, of Taiwan in the case of China. Uh, and they do not want to use war. They want to expand. They want to get rich. They want to have clout. They want people to admire them. They want to have uh, people uh, be impressed by their prowess or their economic prowess or their ability to go to the moon or put on a good Olympics. Um, so there, that, that's, that doesn't strike me as being a threat. It might be a challenge. Uh, you might want to worry about cyber balloons. You might want to worry about uh, shoring up uh, uh, security uh, interests and, and secrets and so forth so they can't be stolen. Um, but it's not, it's not the kind of, it, it essentially, you go back to the theme of the book, it seems to be that nobody wants to get into any kind of considerable war, fighting war, um, international, international wars uh, again. Uh, and I think that's a strong read, not a weak one. Um, that basically they'll go up to war. They'll, there's, a, there's a study showing that there's, there's quite a few border conflicts around the world that have been since World War II, but they've been little tiny things with the, with the in, people creeping up and grabbing a bit of territory and claiming to being part of their country. Uh, but they, what they have been very careful about is not letting that to escalate to war. In olden times, that would have been a causes belly. That's how you get into wars. Someone sees a chunk of your territory, so you declare war. Not anymore. Uh, there, there's, there's disagreements. There's obviously tons of economic disagreements. Um, and um, those basically should be worked out. But, they don't, but they're, not, they're not reasons for going to war, as most people see it now. Overwhelmingly, I think, international war. You know, your, your explanation, your, your assessment of national security threats to the United States in this era certainly um, uh, conflicts with the general view in, in Washington and among policymakers about what the set of threats we face uh, before and now are. Um, how do you then explain uh, how far off the U.S. government is? Why? Is it what are the 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 factors that uh, push the United States to intervene and exaggerate fears and pretend threats are way greater than they are? Well, it's hard to know. It's it's, a, it's obviously a syndrome against which I've been trying to fight. Um, but going through, for example, uh, the China threat. You know, you read these guys, 
uh, like McMaster, for example, um, and H.R. McMaster. And then, he, then, you know, the threats are, well, they want to steal our technology. Well, then, you know, that's not a nice thing. And maybe you want to shore it up a bit. Or they want to out of compete us in something. Um, or they want to expand their military in areas that they consider important. Um, for, for example, the South China Sea. Well, none of those are really major problems. Um, they, they are problems, but they're not necessarily warlike problems. Uh, and I see it basically in a situation in which there's essentially a culture of peace, if I can use that term. In other words, a feeling that war is really a stupid idea, uh, that uh, there's plenty of leeway for trying to work those out. Not everybody agrees with everybody. People are going to disagree. There's religious disagreements. Uh, there's tactical agreements on a lot of things. There's territorial disagreements on a lot of things. Uh, but um, it, the idea that they're going to escalate to something in, in, uh, that really seems to be warfare of a major sort is, it seems to be extremely low. You make a case for a substantial reduction in the size of our military and how much resources we devote to national security. And one way you approach this argument is in the spirit of Bernard Brody, who famously said that sometimes the best way to keep people out of trouble is to deny them the means for getting into it. And by this, you suggest that it, it may not be good enough for the United States to maintain a large and powerful military, but just exercise that power less frequently because you can't quite trust policymakers to uh, have that kind of prudence. And because given what we know about human nature, having a large military may in fact be enabling uh, officials to go to war more frequently or have a more militaristic foreign policy. Yeah, well, basically what you want to do is, um, I apply a, a, a test by Newt Gingrich. They call him St. Newt sometimes. Uh, in 2012, he said, uh, defense budget shouldn't be a matter of playing games. Defense budget should be a matter of seeing what the threat is and being prepared for it. And I think, Newt, you got it right this time. Uh, and if you look at the threats, there's hardly any threats that seem to be big enough to require much in the way of military force. Uh, on the other hand, as you point out, Brody pointed out in the disillusionment after, World, after the Vietnam War, that if you have a large military, the danger is, is it's going to cause people to want to use it. So if we hadn't had a military, we wouldn't, have, we wouldn't have gotten into Vietnam. If we hadn't had a military, we wouldn't have gotten into Iraq. If we hadn't had a military, we wouldn't have gotten into Afghanistan. Uh, and there are an awful lot of people would not be dead uh, because of that. So it just seems to me, if they want to look at the threats that do exist, uh, problems that do exist, uh, very few of them um, uh, require military force. Um, the uh, China's expanding economically, perhaps. Um, and uh, so what? I mean, it's expanded economically. See if they got stuff we want to buy or they'll buy from us. Uh, that's not a threat. That's simply something that's going to happen. They may swing their weight a little bit and we may not like it around the world. And we may not like it. Well, you have to live with that. But you're not going to stop them from swinging their weight by threatening them with you know, uh, artillery, much less nuclear weapons. So it, it just seems to me that the, the threats or the problems that are out there are not resolvable militarily. I do sort of cover myself a little bit, uh, suggesting there's a few things we should maintain. It's, uh, maintain. Uh, one would be a, fair, a small number of nuclear weapons in the wildly unlikely event that there's another Hitler that arises someplace. Uh, some effort, some ra rapid reaction forces, some ability, as with the ISIS thing, of being able to pr support 
air support for friendly forces on the ground, um, and a few other things, including uh, maintaining a capacity for rebuilding new, uh, militarily if a real cha- a military challenger actually uh, comes on the scene, something of which, of course, I think is extremely unlikely. The book is called The Stupidity of War, American Foreign Policy and the Case for Complacency. I highly, highly recommend it to all of my listeners. It was a pleasure to read. Um, John Mueller, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Really great to be here. 